Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. In June of last year, we brought you the story of a long-shot legal challenge against the U.S. Food and Drug Administration by Big Time Vapes, a Mississippi vape shop and e-liquid manufacturer, and the USVA, the United States Vaping Association. The lawsuit argues that Congress ceded too much authority to the executive branch when it passed the Tobacco Control Act of 2009 an authority used by FDA to deem vaping products to be a tobacco product. The original complaint was dismissed in U.S. District Court in 2019, and since our last coverage, the suit failed on appeal. However, it's not over until it's over, and that leaves the U.S. Supreme Court. Joining us today is Jared Navar, the lawyer behind the lawsuit, and lawyer Greg Troutman, who filed an amicus brief on behalf of 19 vaping associations in support of the big-time vapes petition to the highest court in the land. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on RegWatch. My pleasure. Thank you. Jared, let's pick up our conversation. But the first, is this really a long shot? Well, sure. Well, no, thanks for the, the segue. Because I was going to, we're on the same page on this, but I was going to push back on that characterization because, and, you know, and, and I've seen people in the, in the vaping forums on Facebook say, you know, they're hopeful, but they're like, oh, but, you know, chances are very slim that it's going to be taken by the court. And I know we're sort of all on the same page here and there's good, you know, <laughs> I understand where that comes from. And people will often cite the, you know, the, the the statistics on the likelihood of a petition for cert being granted by the Supreme Court. Right. They only and the, the rule is in civil cases that are not like prisoner appeals between two and four percent of those will be accepted in any given year. And but what we have in this case is extremely rare, which is that. This is an argument that a majority of the justices on the current court have asked for and said expressly that they want to reinvigorate and, you know, deal with this doctrine. And so we are we are we're in a category just completely unique from 99 percent of all the other civil cases that are asking for review in the Supreme Court. Um, and I know you know that and we've talked about that before, but I just want to remind people of that because, you know, uh, people. It, it, I think in our case, it's not it's not necessarily uh, accurate to, to just think of it as like a run of the mill, you know, appeal to the Supreme Court. So if it's not entirely a long shot, then what is it about it that you think it would be appealing for SCOTUS to take it up? Well, you know, um, the the Supreme Court dealt with non-delegation in 2019 and in, in the Gundy case, Gundy versus United States, which is. Um, a case involving a complete different statute, but it involved the same theory, the same non-delegation argument, separation of powers. And for the first time in, in uh, you know, several years, well, for the first time ever, you had a clear majority of the court saying expressly that they want to put some teeth into this doctrine. You've had judges like Justice Rehnquist in the 80s said this in the case, and Justice Thomas has been saying it for years and, and virtually everything that he writes about this issue, you know, usually when he's dissenting in these cases. Uh, but uh, but for the first time in 2019, a majority of the justices said that they want to really take a look at this and that the administrative state has just been allowed to explode. Essentially what they said by the, the failure of the court over the last eight decades to enforce this doctrine. So. And, and we have a case that's presenting that, that exact issue. And I can go in, you know, later in the interview, I can go into why I think our case is, uh, has a better chance than, than the other cases that have been percolating up on this issue. 
But um, essentially, that's it. You, you know, that 2019 Gundy decision was a harbinger of things to come. Let's see if I can explain this tightly here for our audience. Basically, you've got members of Congress, and it's the same in Canada, any system of similar consequence like we all share here. And that's we have elected politicians that we elect to make laws that govern us. And instead of actually passing the nitty gritty of the laws, they pass frameworks and then hand those frameworks off to the administrative state, unelected bureaucrats who then make, you know, our lives a living hell. Well, exactly. And and I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on Canadian law, but it sounds like you may have, you know, the sim- a similar kind of problem. And in the United States, it's been, it, there's been a steady, you know, growth of the administrative state and a steady, you know, sort of uh, punting of authority from Congress to the executive branch ever since uh, the New Deal. And, and really, really before that, um, but especially since the New Deal, right? And so, for 60 plus years, we've had this sort of creeping administrative state that's allowed you know more and more control over people's lives. And it's gotten to a point where now a majority of the court is ready to deal with it. And just one last thing, and then we'll hop to Greg here to get his first word. So Jared, you have uh, this suit now in front of the Supreme Court. Is this the first time that a vaping suit has like gotten this close to the highest court? Somebody could correct me later, but I believe so. I believe so. So, Greg, you filed this amicus brief. What is that for our viewers? What this is, is I represent 19 national or state uh, trade trade and advocacy organizations who really wanted to weigh in to have their voice heard uh, in support of, of Jared's petition. Um, and what we did was we I, I've, I addressed this from sort of a different perspective than Jared did. I wanted to give sort of a history and overview of the industry. Uh, and I wanted to most importantly dispel the myth that the vape industry is controlled by big tobacco. Uh, that's the biggest thing. And, and then to get into um, arguing and giving examples of how over delegation to agencies uh, in the in the current environment we're in, where there's lobbyists galore, and, and I talk about it and give examples of um, how the NGOs, the the um, and anti tobacco groups lobby and how much they spend per year lobbying FDA on their efforts, and so you've got unelected, appointed, unaccountable bureaucrats are making law being heavily lobbied, but there's no accountability to the voters. So what's happening is these, these, these bureaucrats are determining winners and losers, but they don't have to ha- be accountable to the people who they make a loser. And all we're saying is to the Supreme Court is rein this in, make Congress legislate. If it's a legislative matter uh, or a use of legislative authority, make it come from Congress, not the agencies. So therefore it's Congress who, they're gonna pick winners and losers, but they have to be able to face the people that they make losers and be accountable to them at the, at the ballot box, which we don't have now. You can't and really it, fire anybody in the administrative state that easily. Well, and, and to give you a, a sort of a heads up, there's another case that's coming down the pike soon that's the Pacific Legal Foundation case. 
on uh, they lost in the D.C. Appeals Court on the question of whether the low-level staffer who, if in, in under the Tobacco Control Act, um, the deeming authority was given to HHS's secretary, who internally deferred that to the FDA commissioner, who internally then deferred that three times removed down to a low-level staffer who's outside the area of, of appointment. This is a civil career civil servant. So really, talk about accountability. There is none. That's the Pacific legal case. And what I'm hoping happens is we're sort of on a close enough timeline. I'm kind of hoping the court puts them both together. So, Jared, give us some idea of what you're expecting uh, from the Supreme Court. Now, we touched on the likelihood that they might take the cases or any way of knowing what the chances are. Well, I mean, you, you can, there are law professors who actually pretty recently uh, did a study on this. They went back and studied like the most recent um, several terms of the court and they aggregated all this data and, and tried to divine like, what are the, you know, for various types of cases, what is the chance of, of the court taking it? And um, one of the things they looked at, and so that's where I get the number I gave you earlier, which is in a non-prisoner civil case where the where the party asking for review is represented by counsel um you you have a two to four percent chance of getting review now that's that's from all civil cases right represented by uh by counsel now um you can look at a few other things to figure out to sort of read the tea leaves and see how strong you might be one one is that um the in our case the government has decided to voluntarily respond and that's an important fact because in the vast majority of cases and, in, and again in this category of civil case in about 75 percent of the cases the government just uh, waves their response there's no requirement for the for the government or the responding party to respond at all because in the vast majority of these cases the court is not going to take it anyway right so if the court wants a response so basically you can say, look, we're just, we're gonna waive our response. You tell the court that. And then if the court thinks it's a serious case and they, they're interested in it, they'll ask you for the response before they make a decision, right? Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, the government actually voluntarily told the court that they're going to respond uh, without any request from the court. And that's significant. That means that, that means that they cannot with a straight face tell the court that this is a frivolous case. Um, they so so they're writing their response. They asked for thirty you know, a short extension, so they're they're going to file that later this month. But um, that's the first step. That's the first thing you look for, and the fact that they are going to respond to it means that they're taking it seriously, and and, I, and that's because they know the court's going to take it seriously. What if anything is specific in this case that's about vaping, or is this just you know mere technical matter when it comes to delegation? Well, I guess in a way, right, vaping, the, the, the issue in the case is the constitutional separation of powers issue, the delegation issue. That's what they have to decide. And they're not, they're going to look at it in, in terms of that issue and not that, not that they are there to make policy on this industry or any other industry. You know, the whole argument is that needs to be done by Congress and not by, by the executive branch. And, and actually I put at the, at the, in part of our brief, I made what I thought was an interesting argument based on the way this has all happened and going, going to, you know, Greg, Greg, and, and I really appreciate his 
amicus brief on, on behalf of all of his clients and sort of taking that additional angle or, you know, giving fleshing it out for the court. But one thing I pointed out is this, this case illustrates this really ironic position we've arrived at where this delegation regime is so, is so beyond the pale, is so overreaching that, I mean, people in the vape industry know sort of how this has played out, right? Where essentially what you have is ever since the deeming rule was passed by the FDA, the courts, because civil lawsuits have been filed by these anti-tobacco groups, these NGOs, the policy on vaping has been being made not just in the FDA, but in the courts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the court that overrode the FDA's decision with respect to the deadlines um, and, and put the FDA in the position that they never wanted to be in, where now they're, they're, they're sort of, you know, they had to enforce this deadline and then they, they you know, they, they rushed the rule out, the proposed rule with these specific requirements. And, and maybe now I'm getting too far in the weeds, but I'll just, so I'll just finish the point here that part of my argument to the Supreme Court is the the delegation that we are living under right now is so bad that it's not just, uh, it's not just delegation to the executive. It's in essence, it's delegation to the judicial branch. And that's not a position they should be in, you know, even less than the executive at the FDA. So, um, but did, you know, when you look at the facts here, the courts have, the district courts have been making vaping policy. It, it bothers me a bit because we see so much uh, lawmaking done uh, by the courts, and that just doesn't seem to be appropriate. Greg? I agree. And, and this goes back to the, the grim decision in the uh, uh, American Academy of Pediatrics case out of Maryland, is the, the judge uniformly set the deadlines. He didn't say go back to the agency and set these give them a chance to do that, which they argued they should they should be allowed to do. He said, this is the date. As far as the court's mindset about this, if the court is looking to address an issue, and, and it's very clear in my mind, and I think Jared agrees, that the court's looking to deal with the delegation issue. They will take the, they will take the right case that comes along that deals with that issue. So your 2%, 4%, in my mind, is off the table. If the court's hot to address the issue, uh, and I'll give you an example, the about 2007, 2008, the court was really wanting to deal with school desegregation. There just happened to be two cases come along, one from Seattle and one from Louisville. And guess what? The court took the cases. And it didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter who the lawyers were that argued them. They were wanting to make a statement. And they took the cases. And, and they, they made their statement. If, in fact, the court really wants to do this, they're going to do what they want to do. The, 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 another irony is the morning after uh, President Trump nominated Justice Barrett, I'm in the airport in Milwaukee on a catch a flight home, and I'm looking through, scrolling through on CNN, and they had a story about how certain issues would probably come down with Judge Bar- Justice Barrett. And guess what one of the issues they discussed was? Delegation. It seems to be a fairly safe place, I think, for a more conservative Supreme Court to go to. Well, they're not going to be able to hide from some of the social issues that, you know, haunt uh, the highest court. But something like delegation could be something they could sink their teeth into. Jared, when you look at the new makeup of the court, is that hopeful for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think there's no question there's there's a... 
uh, a very, very good chance they're going to take this case. I, I mean, they have they themselves have said, and I can't emphasize this point enough because we, you're right, Greg's right that that normal percentage of that's granted review is completely off the table. Um, if they believe this is the right case, they will take the case. And I mean, and we know that because the majority of them have said so. That is extremely rare. And and another example you can look at is. Early in in the, in the Roberts court, when Roberts uh, you know assumed the chief justice role, there there was an opinion, and I forget the case names, but there was an opinion um, where well, I think it was actually out of Austin, Texas, strangely enough, and 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 actually the the plaintiff was a was later to be a client of mine in another case um, in the Fifth Circuit, but uh, but he he had a case that was challenging. Um, a provision of the Voting Rights Act and the application of pre-clearance review to certain types of um, government districts in Texas. And the court in that case said, basically said, hey, like if the government doesn't change the way it's interpreting some of these things, we're going to have to step in and fix the Voting Rights Act and the pre-clearance provision because it's outmoded, you know, based on decades of history, they're still using a formula that was was developed in the civil rights era, which doesn't apply into the facts anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And then a few years later um, was the Alabama case where they, you know, where where they did um, uh, rule and constitutional parts of the Voting Rights Act formula. Um, And and so this this is an exact parallel to that. It's you have the Gundy decision from 2019 where they're saying we are going to fix this doctrine and they're just waiting for the right case. Now, when it comes to fixing the doctrine, what I'm trying to get my head around here is that would the administrative state, would the regulatory agencies all of a sudden not have the power and authority to do the rulemaking that they do if non-delegation comes into effect? Well, and this this is where this is where we get a little bit into the weeds, but I'll try to keep it still a little, a little high level. So, and and if you the deeper you go down into this delegation issue or quagmire, it really can be a, a confounding problem. To, to like like anything else, the hardest part of any legal question is the definitional question, defining what you know, writing the definitions in a statutory scheme, or for a court defining what. Uh, the parameters of some something are is the hardest part. And so when you try to define what is legislative, you know, where is the line? Where, when does it become when what is too much authority to delegate to an executive agency to fill up details or to write rules that elaborate on the standards Congress has passed? That can be an incredibly difficult question. Mm-hmm. And and you could have conservatives who, who disagree vehemently on whether the line has been crossed. Uh, but but one of the things that's beautiful about our case, and I think increases our chances for review uh, and, and for victory, is that, and I've argued this in my petition, they don't have to get into that debate at all. We should win under the law that's already in there because Congress got so sloppy, you know, 85 years down the road after, with no enforcement of this doctrine, they got so sloppy that they wrote the Tobacco Control Act with literally no guidance no parameters. It just literally says they define what a tobacco product is. And then, and then with, but, but at the time people have to remember in 2009. So they write this definition of tobacco product. uh, We're only going to regulate subsets of this industry, which are cigarettes and essentially snuff. Mm -hmm. 
and the FDA can deem anything else that they, you know, want to be subject to this type of regulation. And so they left hookah and cigars and, and then later on, you know, what came to be vapes, right? So, but there's literally no standard. Um, there's nothing telling them what triggers regulation of, of another tobacco product. And, and so um, it's a really clean, easy case in a lot of ways for the court to take. They don't have to engage the debate of, okay, is, is, the, is the guidance that Congress gave enough? Because there was no guidance. So fundamentally, if it comes down to it, what basically the court would be saying is that FDA doesn't have the authority to just wave a magic wand and deem vaping products to be tobacco products. That's something that would have to be at Congress's level. Is that basically it? Right. The basic issue is the the law needs to say, Congress needs to say, uh, if they want to give the FDA the authority to expand the application of the Tobacco Control Act, the law needed to, to tell them under what circumstances, mm-hmm. you know, what triggers the additional regulation. So if the court rules in your favor, in the industry's favor, if you want to put it that way, wouldn't that then just put it right back into Congress's hands and Congress could wave their magic wand and deem uh, vaping products to be tobacco products? And that would be it, right? Well, it could, except except it's a lot harder for Congress for a body of 535 elected representatives, you know, that has to deal with all the um, constitutional and uh, and just political, uh, you know, inertia that comes with lawmaking to do that. They can't they can't wave a magic wand like uh, like an unelected bureaucrat can. Well, and that's the point. And Greg, let me throw that to you. It feels like there's a lot of political overtones here that could, you know, be perceived to be more on the right than the left side. It seems the left always be, you know, pro-administrative state, whereas the right seems to not be. Can you separate political overtones from this or does it is it de facto that way because of the nature of this argument? I don't think it's I don't think we have to get into the political weeds about this. This isn't a left-right conservative liberal issue. It's a foundational issue as to how much authority Congress is going to be able to give the agencies. And and the court could conceivably say, so long as you give a checklist to the agencies that they have to check the boxes, that's sufficient authority. Um, The the Supreme Court could say, as in the case here, we're not going to allow agents, Congress to delegate to agencies the ability to designate additional parameters to put different products under the regulatory umbrella. If Congress wants to regulate an industry and regulate a certain class of products, it has to itemize those in legislation, not itemize some of them and then tell the agency who's going to regulate, we're going to let you decide the scope of your authority. I, I could see where I could see the court doing that in this in this in this instance. One of the issues that we haven't talked about, uh, and I'll try not to get too deep in the weeds, is that the court is really struggling right now with the question of the amount of deference to give to agency actions. It's the Chevron case, the Chevron deference standard. If they take this case and they rule in our favor, it takes a lot of the steam out of the Chevron issue. Because if Congress cannot make delegations at the outset, then you don't have as big a problem with the use of discretion by the agencies downstream. On the political question, it's interesting that uh, you know there've there have been liberal groups that have been pushing this argument as well. And one example is um, 
you know, these, uh, some of these, uh, I forget the name of the group, but some of these uh, immigrant, um, you know, advocacy organizations sued the Trump administration recently over the border wall issues. And, and, and they made this non-delegation argument because uh, parts of the, um, parts of the federal act that authorized the building of the wall, um, the, the immigration authority has incredibly broad delegations and they were making the exact same argument. You know, they, so everybody on all sides of the political spectrum recognizes the, the, the door that's open now after Gundy. And, you know, they were citing the Supreme court's comments in Gundy, um, justice Gorsuch, justice uh, Kavanaugh's, you know, uh, opinion that came later. So everybody sees this door is wide open and it's just a question of when the court's going to take it. I think that is, uh, you know, a major factor, feather on our cap in terms of this case being a better a better vehicle for review of this issue. In a way, you know, plaintiffs and prosecutors on the criminal side, you know, will do to the extent that they can forum shopping. So they'll look for, you know, a friendly judge, friendly court. And un- uniquely with the U.S. Supreme Court is that they can actually kind of issue shop and decide which cases to take to help, you know, address certain issues they might want to address. And that's basically your argument here. Both of you and others are saying that the Supreme Court wants to pick up this non-delegation issue and they're kind of case shopping here. And, and Brent, another another point is a lot of people don't realize this subtlety is when a cert petition comes into the Supreme Court, how it's handled. I know at least Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch, I'm not sure how Justice Barrett's handling this. They don't have their law clerk screen the cert petitions. They review everything themselves. So they have their fresh eyes on it. By the way, the the uh, brief that I wrote, oh, it was absolutely written to Gorsuch and Alito. What's the timing here? If there is a likelihood, when will we know if the ball is getting moved forward? Uh, well, I think, you know, Greg and I have, have sort of, um, I don't know, try to compare notes about this or prognosticate. And I, I really can't say other than to say the government's going to follow their response later this month. Then, then we'll follow a reply to that. Um, and, and then we wait, you know, we'll be able to watch the court's docket. There's sort of, for Supreme Court practitioners, there's sort of a, you know, a parlor game of, you can watch the shadow docket, they call it. And you kind of, it, it's where the court, you know, you just kind of monitor what's going on in terms of, because you can see which cases are, are listed for a particular Friday conference of the justices. Mm-hmm. And often they'll, you know, if, if, if it's an issue that, presents a serious issue they're interested in, they'll kick it, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll keep kicking it down to further conferences and, and keep studying the issue and talking about it. So, uh, you know, other than trying to watch that process, um, I really can't say, but I will say this, uh, just in the last week or so, we're getting, we're getting word that the FDA is starting to, you know, send out these enforcement letters and threatening people with enforcement. And um, we're taking that very seriously. I am on behalf of my clients in this case. And I've, I've already, you know, asked information. If your viewers have, you know, what I'm basically after is um, we, are, we are probably going to file a motion for an injunction, a preliminary injunction um, in the Supreme Court in the very, very near future, like in the next few weeks, because I'm not going to let people be pushed out of business while this is going on. And if there, if there are people who are on the cusp of you know, you get an enforcement letter or your supplies drying up because of the FDA's actions here. Um, let us know, get word to the USBA because we're, we're preparing an injunction motion and 
nobody should be forced off the market because they're making those kind of decisions right now when there's a very good chance that we're going to win this case. So that's some real news then happening right now. So our viewers can help by getting in touch with you if they've had some of these issues. Absolutely. Yes. Go, go to the USVA's Facebook page. Uh, there's a website as well, but it's easy to find the group and, and get word to us. I'm collecting any, any, you know, you're as a business owner in this industry, whether you're a manufacturer or a retail shop, your experiences and you you know the kind if you're being forced to make a decision you know I, i've got to decide whether to renew a lease i've got to decide whether to pay rent or to, or to keep my, my my store in stock any of those kind of logistical decisions and the timing of it i'm very interested in and, and we're going to potentially use that as an example and and, and, a, and a basis for an immediate uh, preliminary injunction from the court